Good afternoon to all of our fellow health enthusiasts. My name is Aubrey Mast and I am a professor of nutrition. This is a new podcast developed by my friend and colleague, Dr. Charles Benz, and we call the show Healing Trends with Dr. Benz. We search the internet every day to find the best scientific studies that can be used to improve the health of every interested person. You will note, you will not see many of these studies in the conventional media because most doctors do not have the time or the interest in finding them. And there are special interests that are also less than enthusiastic about you knowing about these studies. Every week we will explore nutritional science and that has the potential to prevent and even reverse 90% of chronic illnesses. This could save many lives and help to stop the healthcare crisis that could eventually bankrupt our country. This is frequently called functional medicine and it has been adopted by thousands of doctors, as well as some medical schools and hospitals, such as the Cleveland Clinic. Today's program is entitled The American Diet and Its Impact Upon Our Healthcare System. Dr. Benz, I think you had found a headline that was pertinent for today. Yes, Aubrey, I think it is a headline that fits very well. Uh, unfortunately, people aren't going to like it. It actually reads 90% of COVID deaths are avoidable. With 400,000 deaths, that means 360,000 of them were avoidable. And the person who made that headline is uh, Dr. Peter Osborne. He's a Texas doctor, and he actually was quoting a study from the Eastern Virginia Medical School that actually has a, a protocol for treating COVID that combines the best of uh, traditional medicine with functional medicine. And that means nutrition like vitamin C and D and zinc and quercetin. And I just think that's kind of shocking. And the other thing that, that I would add into this is that uh, we know that most people don't have a very good diet. Uh, there was a study from the National Cancer Institute of 16,000 people. They couldn't find one person with a healthy diet. In fact, 11 out of 14 people were deficient in key areas. And uh, University of North Carolina had a similar study, and uh, the Stanford uh, University Medical School had a similar study. And so when you look at all this together, at least 90% of adults don't have a good enough diet to really resist this virus. And this is a telling thing Look at the statistic from the number of people that are dead compared to other countries. Out of 100,000 people, 121 died in the U.S., only four out of 100,000 in Japan. And what do we know about the Japanese diet? It's a lot healthier and it's more plant-based. Yes, exactly. And they have a lot less uh, of, of, of the kind of chronic illnesses that we face. And when you look at the U.S. rate of chronic illness, 60 years ago, it was 10% of adults had a chronic illness. Now it's 70%. That's like a 700% increase in 60 years. And our healthcare cost is about twice of what other development mm -hmm. countries are. And when you look at these deaths, again, uh, this is a real crisis. And eventually, as you pointed out in the, in the lead-in, probably 100% of our gross national product is actually going to go to healthcare by the year 2065. This again was from an, an economist in Britain that did an analysis of us, but uh, I, I don't know where this is going, but I, I'd like to ask you, where, how do you think this happened? What were some of the reasons that, that you came up with in your research that, that steers us in the direction of how people are getting so unhealthy in their diet? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's so many different avenues we can take there from sociological perspectives and economic perspectives. You know, the industrial agricultural revolution definitely um, increased our consumption of processed foods. And our food choices have been passed down from generation to generation where we have dietary patterns that have occurred. And there's a research that was published in 2019 that was looking at dietary patterns from the South, from the Northeast, Northwest, um, the Western states, and looking at the correlation with these dietary patterns, the cultural patterns, the familial patterns, um, and their risk of chronic diseases. And what they showed was that the more people become um, really inundated with choosing the same dietary patterns that have been passed down from generation to generation, that and I mean that in the sense of losing that indigenous quality of losing the connection to whole foods, whole food sources, organic foods, um, and have adopted more of these processed and highly uh, calorically and deficient diets. They have a higher risk of chronic diseases, which as we talk, you know, 90% of chronic diseases are actually preventable through dietary changes. And so that brings up the point of like, people are eating what they like, and a lot of times this is food that tastes good, but it means the reason why it's tasted and good is because it's highly processed. There's a lot of additional fat and there's a lot of additional sugar in that, which really creates an addiction, truthfully, to foods. And there's been several brain study um, brain studies that have been done around what happens when people eat highly processed foods and you see the same areas of the brain lighting up in response to those chips those Oreos, those foods that are really um, processed and devoid of a lot of nutrient quality as if somebody were to experience a high pleasure response to drugs. And so there's an addiction quality to our food. And I mean, this brings us into a bigger conversation that definitely is found within functional medicine of the emotional aspect of why do we eat what we eat and how do we consume what we consume, right? And what's happening mentally, but also the way that we're advertised foods in our society is really quite alarming where when we've moved from a an a perspective that once had us all cooking in the kitchen and preparing meals from scratch and having this family and this community connection time to now wanting foods as quick as possible and having hundreds of options of cereals and chips but we've lost that connection to, well, where is the hamburger coming from that we're picking up at that fast food joint? We are have slowly forgot how to uh, track food origins. And in that advertising, what we see from an advertising perspective is that the foods that are devoid of nutrients are also the ones that are the most commonly advertised to us. We don't really regularly ever see advertisements for eating walnuts because they're heart healthy or brain healthy or blueberries because they will help your gut microbiome, right? We're more likely to see the processed foods or the fast food restaurants advertising to us. And that sort of perpetuates that whole craving and addiction thing, um, an aspect of why are we making these nutritional choices repeatedly? I think you nailed it. I, 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 I think people are addicted. I, I really do. I mean, I, I've, I've actually... Uh, Mm-hmm. done some work on this and figured out what the cravings are and there's a great little one pager that i have that shows if you crave salt or if you ch- crave sugar or if you crave alcohol in this case there was one for if you crave chocolate 
And I have a lot of fun with this one when I go to my workshops because a lot of times women are the ones that have the most cravings for chocolate. <laughs> and so I have a lot of fun with them. And I say, so how many, how many women have a chocolate storage place where they hide their chocolate? And, and you know, all the hands go up in the room. <laughs> and, and then I say, well, you know, uh, that's a craving for magnesium. And I said, so if you ate more beans and legumes, you could reduce yeah. that craving. Right. And they look at me and they think, who is this guy and why is he ruining my life? <laughs> and I just say, hey, don't worry. Uh, you can eat more of the legumes and the other things. You'll just reduce your craving a bit. You can still have a little bit, but you don't have to have, you know, the amount that you might like to have because you have this craving for magnesium. So... Right. I think you're right. I think it just brings up such a good, beautiful point, too, because it's like, well, we've lost, we don't have that education, right, around nutrition. We don't have that understanding that when our bodies are craving sweets or salty foods, that it's really because our bodies need an essential nutrient or mineral or trace mineral. And that brings up that conversation of, well, how do we become educated as consumers on what are our nutritional needs besides the macros of carbohydrates and fats and proteins like what are our nutritional needs from a, a vitamin and mineral perspective well you know one of the things that i love to do when i get uh, a group and, and i start off the the day before i do anything else i say so how many of you think you have a really good diet and about 90 percent of the hands go up and that's that's the problem right there then i do my workshop and then mm -hmm. I asked them at the end, so how many people think they have a good diet now? Not one hand goes up. And so there's a bit of delusion going on here. In fact, not a bit. There's a lot of delusion going on. People think if they eat a little salad every once in a while and they avoid this or avoid that, they're eating a really good diet. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to start to address without you know, turning people off to eating at all. And, 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 but how do you think they shop? What, let's do the shopping thing. Um, where do you think the bad food is in the grocery store and the good food is? And I know, every, I know you know it and everybody else knows it, but let's tell the average person what, what's out there. Yeah, I think that anything that's processed and packaged and has a label with more than five ingredients is exactly where we do not need to be going, which usually is the center of the grocery store. Honestly, if we're walking the perimeter of the grocery store, that's usually where we're able to access, you know, our fruits and vegetables, the frozen fruits and vegetables, um, the yogurts and the dairy aisles, things like that. Uh, you know, and that brings up that point to me, which is really alarming because I have the same conversation with my students where I teach where... I ask the same thing that you're asking, how, how healthy do you think that you are? And then behind that question of how healthy is your diet, how many fruits and vegetables are you getting? And you re the research right now shows that most Americans, in fact, one out of every 10 people in America are eating less fruits and vegetables than they really should be. And the majority of Americans are eating under two servings of fruits and vegetables a day and typically coming in the form of French fries and ketchup. <laughs> or juice and so we're really not accessing right like the actual nutrients we're needing um and you know there's so many culprits at play there well and you know i i, I don't want to point too many fingers at the rda or the usda but those particular guidelines are really not sufficient at all uh the art the rda is is uh the they say the recommended day allowance that's the minimum allowance 
And so if you right. get vitamin C at like 90 milligrams, that's going to prevent scurvy, but it won't prevent heart mm -hmm. disease or cancer or diabetes or anything else. So I would say scrap it. There's actually a, a one out there called the optimal daily allowance. That's the one people should go for. And the other thing that I notice about the USDA is they've been having trouble with their food pyramid. And uh, <laughs> they've been getting a lot of pressure in the last 10 or 20 years from people like us saying, that pyramid stinks. <laughs> and you know, Walter Willett, who wrote a book uh, about the, uh, the diet, um, uh, and, and so he actually said, this, this uh, USDA food pyramid was actually causing more heart disease and cancer than it was stopping. And, and so he created the Harvard food pyramid. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that I've been using for years and years and years. So uh, I think we're on the right track here. But what do you feel about vegetables? Because we know that's the most important thing. Uh, but a lot of people either can't get the organic or they think it's too expensive. What do you think about other alternatives to like fresh organic? What do you think about frozen organic vegetables, for example? I think they're fantastic. You know, when I've gone through my training, it's been always to present anybody um, with the good, the better, and then the best option. And, you know, we cannot talk about food without talking about the ecological and the social intersection of nutrition. And food access is obviously a major con conversation that is included within nutrition and nutrition education. And so for individuals that have limited access to organics or they live in an area where they don't have locally grown food, you know, uh, frozen vegetables are and frozen fruit too are a wonderful option because when they are harvested, they're harvested at the height of their nutritional density and then they're flash frozen. And so they're usually a much better option than having anything canned and anything canned also has a whole host of um, contaminant issues that goes along with it that can increase inflammation in the body and it is definitely correlated with other chronic disease risk and so I think to your question like organic and locally um, locally attained is definitely your best and then right behind that to me is organic frozen vegetables and for organic frozen fruits. Yeah. yeah. I've been saying that for so long and it's really unfortunate that yesterday one of the big uh, nutritional supplement companies came out and tried to fill this gap with the fresh, and they started talking about uh, canned food. Mm -hmm. and, and they didn't even mention frozen food. And I thought, who are the educators here? Who are the people that are actually guiding these companies? Because we need to get a more consistent message out. And so when people say to me, how many vegetables do you eat a day? I go, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20. Yep. And they go, what? And I go, well, first of all, I eat two or three vegetables for lunch and or for breakfast, a couple for dinner and two or three more for lunch and dinner. In other words, I'm eating all day long vegetables and fruits. Right. But I also take a green powder drink. And these green powder drinks are really great because you can get seven or eight or nine helpings of vegetables in just that one one scoop and make your make your shake up with that. And all of a sudden you bumped your uh, fruit and vegetable intake from like two or three or four a day up to 12 or 15 a day. And to me, you know, I'm, I'm like, a, 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 I guess people would say I'm a hypochondriac, but I, I like to be on the leading edge of this stuff and, and I like to optimize my nutrients. And so 
I, I get those and I, I take some supplements as well because what, what do you think about when doctors say, well, you know, if you eat a healthy diet, you can get all the nutrients you need? I think that, you know, Dr. Michael Greger and Michael Pollan really explored this. I love the premise and the notion. And I mean, I'm an idealist at heart. So I love the notion of believing that we can get all the nutrients and minerals that we would need from food. And I fall in the same camp as you, along with most nutritional researchers and experts in this field, where we say, you know, anywhere from 13 to 22 servings of fruits and vegetables a day is really the ideal when we're talking about preventing (laughs) these chronic diseases. And Dr. Uh, Michael Greger spoke specifically of like, we're not talking about just changing our diets. We're talking about having diets that are extremely complex and diversified within phytochemical concentrations, because that's what targets immune system response. And that's what helps fight the inflammation associated with chronic diseases. And so to believe that we can get all of those phytochemicals solely from the food that we're eating, I just don't think that that's actually truthful at this point in society. When we have crops that are grown in monocultures, we have genetically modified foods that are in our uh, grocery system and our food system repeatedly. And we have these dietary patterns. I mean, let's face it, most of us do get in ruts and consume the same kind of foods every single week. And we don't have a really a diversified diet, if you will. Because of those factors of the soil quality and our dietary patterns um, and the food choices we have available to us, I find it pretty um, not necessarily always accessible for most individuals to be able to get all of the nutrients and especially those macronutrients and those trace minerals that are necessary to support cellular health and mitochondrial function from their food sources. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, I actually say to anybody who will listen, I challenge you to find the study that shows that that's possible because I haven't, I haven't seen that study. I've seen the opinion, but I haven't seen the study. And when you look back at this National Cancer Institute study of 16,000 mm-hmm. people, not one person had a truly healthy diet and they were deficient in 11 out of 14 areas, most of them, and it was all the areas you've just been mentioning. And then you can go down to uh, all these other studies that were done in these universities or even the national, uh, the, the, the national organizations, Center for Disease Control, they also say 95% of people don't get the nutrients they need. So I think the challenge is what, what, what can we do about it? I mean, let's, let's kind of wrap it up with some really good, strong ideas that, that maybe will lead us in the direction of, of where we can go to, to start to solve this problem. For sure. I think the first and the foremost place to begin is mandated nutritional education. When most consumers don't understand what a food label says or how to apply it within their kitchen or what the food plate says, that's really where we have to begin, which means nutrition education from the ground up. Children should be engaging in nutritional education. Where does the food come from? How do I prepare it? How is it connected to my health and well-being? That concept of nutrition education moves on forward to medical schools as well. And we see this with Tulane University. We see this with um, Gerald L. Ford University. And then we're also seeing this with doctors in California and some northeastern states that are writing food prescriptions to help their patients understand what would a good diet look like and how do I pers- how do I uh, make that part of my lifestyle changes? 
I'd like to start right out of the starting block when women are pregnant. I mean, yep, exactly. I think every, every woman that leaves the hospital or or, or, or the nurse or should be handed a little kit that says, here's how to feed your child. And this should not be based on the re- recommended daily allowance or the uh, food or the food pyramid. This should be based on the, the Walter Woolitt's uh, Harvard pyramid. Okay. Yep. And so I think right out of the starting blocks, get them started and then uh, teach them in the schools and and don't wait. I mean, some of the best programs are in the grade schools. Yep. And and so you, you look at Anthony Ademis who's done this program with six, uh, six graders. She did mm-hmm. a fantastic job. They were really interested and they actually changed their nutritional program uh, in, in the, uh, in the schools to get different foods put into the cafeteria. So I think the younger you start, the better base you're going to have and the better you're going to be able to get people to change their patterns. Actually, the kids go home after learning these things and they get their parents to change what's what's being eaten there. So I think the kids are the answer myself. Well, what else do you have in terms of, of, uh, of changes here? Well, I think that that brings up the next point of what to do for, uh, especially starting at children, you know, when we have one in four children that are pre-diabetic at this point in time, we really have to tackle how does food become an addiction. And so the second point that I have is recognizing that food is an addiction, right? When we have emotional reactions or emotional disturbances, do we reach for sweets? Do we have salty foods? There is an emotional and an addictive quality to foods, especially the highly processed foods that keep us coming back for more. And so recognizing that as part of uh, the obesity epidemic and targeting food as an addictive substance at times, especially when it's processed. Yeah, I think that it's unfortunate that, you know, 70% of people are now over overweight or obese. And to build on that point that you made about one quarter of kids being uh, diabetic, I think that there is new evidence from the uh, National Centers of uh, Health that, uh, Actually, by the by the year two thousand thirty-five or forty, forty-five um, percent mm-hmm. of uh, the people who were kids or who were born after the year two thousand will be diabetic, and the the uh, the Caucasians were like forty-five uh, percent, and the uh, Hispanics were forty-eight percent, and the the blacks were like fifty percent. Like the the numbers were astounding that any child born after the year 2000 is going to have a 45 to 50% chance of being a diabetic in their lifetime. If mm-hmm. that's not a health crisis, I don't know what is. To, to me, we need to get on top of this from a legislative point of view. And I think that uh, one of the things that I would like to have is all the doctors have better blood tests. Because right now, even when you go for your annual exam, those tests that they're doing are so benign so right. minimal they don't really tell you about what your cells are doing uh in terms of inflammation like c-reactive protein mm-hmm. uh, even the uh, the glucose test the a1c is a terrible test i think they should recommend the glycomark test that actually tries to, to finds out cells that are changing five to seven years before the a1c can see anything and so I think these advanced blood tests are one of the answers because then people would actually see how their bodies are behaving with the diet that are on because the body will tell you. And I think that's the point that we have to start to concentrate on. What do you think about these stores that, that have labels that are included all these di- different nutritional values and give you actually a score on the foods? 
Have, have you seen or heard anything about that? Yeah, there's some research that's just started to come out in the last several years that looks at when we label foods, especially with their label facing forward to the consumer, so the consumer walks up to the product and looks at a label, that that can actually help steer consumers towards healthier choices. You know, again, what do we normally label though? Processed food. This notion of labeling processed foods is good in the sense that, yes, we need to become more educated consumers, but also really I think what we will end up talking about and what we've already talked about thus far is moving more towards a whole foods diet where we're not relying on a lot of processed foods that would have that labeling. Um, and these systems are already available that label foods and show us how many phytochemicals are in them. Are they heart healthy? Do they um, supply adequate fiber? So the more we see the labeling, I think it can help a consumer understand it. Again, this brings us back to that point though of are consumers educated in what the labels are saying and what the labels actually stand for? Yeah, we have to make it simple. And a couple of the ones that I really like actually put a score on it. And so they give you a score of like A, B, C, D, and say, you know, if you're the A's are the ones with the most nutrients. I agree with you. We, we should probably get them to shop on the outside of the store first. But if you're going to shop in the center, then go for a food that has a label on it that says this food really has this nutritional value. I, you know, and I wish that would do the job, but you know what? I don't think it's going to do the job. I think we have to start putting taxes, taxes on the foods that aren't as healthy. And I know everybody hates that idea. Hungary's doing it. Mexico's doing it. There are eight other local governments that are doing it. I think it's a wave of the future because I think when you penalize things like that, you get people's attention and then they will educate themselves. I think sometimes a stick and a carrot have to go together. And so I like the carrot, but I like the stick too. And I think this is one whose time has come. I agree completely, especially when we have the, you know, the common argument for making nutritional changes is that why is unhealthy food so inexpensive, but healthy food is so expensive? Well, that's a good way to get us all to move towards making healthier food choices. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think that we have to stop the food companies from lobbying so much. And same with the drug companies. We have to get them out of the business of, of uh, doing too many commercials that you know, advertise either drugs or bad food. And uh, I just think there's so many things that can be done. I just don't know who's going to take the lead in this. Uh, I wish there was an agency that had the courage to step up and do all this. But uh, if you have any ideas, now's the time because we've got a, only a few minutes left for our program. And I'd love to know who takes the lead in this whole effort that you and I've been talking about. Well, I think that we do that as consumers and that we elect officials and we participate in, you know, within the government agencies that represent nutrition. And so as consumers, we've really shifted the marketplace from all commercial foods to having organic availability. And the same thing we have seen that shift from people that have food allergies to now we have lots of different gluten-free options, right, for uh, people that have celiac disease. So as consumers, we have the power to shift all of the premises that we've talked about away from healthcare costs, away from chronic diseases. But that means that we all have to be engaging and making changes that begin with what is at the end of our fork. I, th I think you're right, and, and I think the National Institute of Health is the way that we should do this. Back in the 90s, uh, they got some funding from, uh, I think it was Clinton, and they started to do some research. And so I think they and the uh, Center for Disease Control are the two agencies 
that need to get together. We need to try to get some pressure on them from people like us and others in our industry that can actually get them to put a commission together that will address this problem. And, and, and I hope that we can get to that sooner than later. Um, I think this has been good, Aubrey. I really appreciate you joining in today. You added so much. I'd like to take a few minutes and just say thank you to our sponsors today. We've had some great advertisers that have added some of their financial support to our program. Uh, Southern Trust Financial Planning, uh, they're helping clients to stay financially healthy and, uh, and take your personal health uh, the same as they take their personal wealth into consideration. Uh, DHA Labs, uh, they're known for their advanced brain chemistry testing and uh, now have other tests, uh, wellness tests and immune system tests and cancer tests. So any physician, any wellness plan can be involved by contacting DHA Labs and they'll get a good idea of what's available in, in terms of those advanced tests that you and I were talking about. And Paddock Pools in South Carolina, they're the healthiest pools for people of all ages and swimming levels. Best exercise, I think, for people who want to swim and, and, and they want to be in the best pools. So they actually have a vacuum extractor that takes the chlorine gas off the, off the uh, pool surface, which really reduces the amount of chlorine exposure. So Paddock Pools is one of our great uh, advertisers. And MPB Healthcare, their standard is breaking the status quo. Uh, they're challenging times, so now there have to be creative health solutions. So this uh, medical cost saving plan is one of the best in the country, and it can actually save up to about 50% of the cost of your health care. It's an alternative to insurance, but it's a viable alternative that everything everybody should be looking at. So I'd like to thank our four sponsors. I'd like to thank Aubrey today for being such a great co-host. And uh, I look forward to our next program where we're going to tackle how does disease really happen and what can we do to prevent it. Thank you. 